Hello, my name is Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher. And this is the TriDoc Podcast, coming to you as always from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. I see that several high-profile members in our sport have decided to take part in a sure-to-be-high-profile project next summer. Sponsored by the Phoenix Foundation and Zwift, four prominent professional triathletes are going to try and go sub-7 for the men and sub-8 for the women over an iron distance triathlon at a venue that is still to be determined. Now, this is the latest venture since the pandemic began that recruits a small number of professional triathletes and infuses a large amount of money in order to try and build interest and excitement in the sport. I'm all for driving more people to triathlon and for doing whatever can be done to maintain interest amongst those who've been sidelined because of race cancellations, but with all of these spectacles to date, I continually have found myself wondering, is this really the way to do it? I've been a little bit disappointed with the lack of imagination among the organizers of these events. Rather than focus on the things that really make triathlon racing entertaining and exciting for those who really understand the sport, these events have thus far been heavy on gimmickry and actually neutralize all the aspects that would introduce the unpredictability that is so important to the excitement that is in our sport already. Think for a moment on what makes you excited about either participating in or watching the top pros compete in a race. I would wager that if you were honest, you would say that the things you enjoy are scenic courses, seeing the pros manage difficult terrain and environments better than we mortals ever could, and watching the very best and biggest personalities go toe-to-toe. Who didn't love watching the entirety of the St. George 70.3 back in May? That pro race was incredible, made even more so by the incredibly spectacular course that it took place on. I mean, the difficulty of going up Snow Canyon made the bike race that much more interesting to watch and to predict who would actually come out and be able to make the run work, not to mention the fact that the run was very difficult itself. How about Ironman Chattanooga in September, where we saw a terrific women's race, and uh, just a short few weeks ago in Ironman Florida, we saw tremendous men and women pro races that were really exciting, despite the fact that there, the courses were actually kind of boring. Now, compare those events to what the supposed innovators have brought us this year. First, the PTO gave us arguably the most boring television event ever, with an incredible pro field, to be sure, that was effectively neutralized by riding in circles on a pancake-flat racetrack, and we're going to be subjected to that again this coming weekend. Lionel and Yan then uh, Lionel and Yan Ferdano then went on and did an amazing job of hyping up their mano a mano battle that took place in Germany. That was a great exp- exhibition of their own individual talents, but was it particularly exciting? I mean, if you weren't super fans of one or both of them, I would argue that probably not so much. Then the PTO gave us the interesting decision of having three people race each other on another very flat and uninspiring course where predictably, except in the case of one Taylor Nib, things shook out pretty much the way you would have expected in each of the events. In fact, over the course of that day where we had multiple races of three, you could kind of see whose heart was in that event and who just kind of showed up. 
In all of these events, we lost the excitement of seeing people with different skill sets being emphasized by varying course terrain. We lost the drama of battles between personalities and day-long race tactics that we saw in the pro races in both Florida and Chattanooga. Instead, what we got was a reduction to tests of really just pure fitness that we could have seen in a gym on a, on a trainer bike. The sub-7 and sub-8 project is going to take this to a whole other level with pacers and a course that is surely going to be incredibly boring because everything's going to be neutralized to ensure that the only thing that matters is getting the participants over the distance under the time cuts. Can it be done? Maybe. Do I care? Uh, Not so much. So with all this tinkering, the sport is not really that much popular than it was before. And I think the reason for that is because none of these events have been particularly novel or that entertaining. Contrast this with an event that pro cycling held back in 2020, uh, sorry, 2019 before the pandemic. They combined all of their most popular events into a three-day extravaganza, and it made for scintillating viewing and not just among cycling fans. Over the course of the event, pro teams gained points based on how their individual riders did in a crit a road race with intermediate times uh, throughout the course, and a team time trial that was then seeded based on the standings after the first two days. And it was epic, an incredibly exciting event. Something similar could easily be done in triathlon with just a little bit of thought and some fresh eyes. The Olympic Mixed Relay was a great idea, something that I've mentioned several times. I think it was probably the highlight of the Olympic triathlon. Start with that kind of event and move forward. The Super League races are also a lot of fun. Just leverage the longer distances that many popular pros will want to compete in, and you could easily come up with some truly exciting events that would be great to watch and definitely bring more eyes to our sport. Honestly, it really shouldn't be this hard, and watching them race around that track this weekend is just not something I'm going to tune into again. On the show today... Immediately after I posted the last episode on iron and iron testing, I began to get inundated with questions about another kind of testing. It looks like our friends over at Inside Tracker got really motivated this year to see how many new customers they could get by getting pretty much everyone famous or not so famous to advertise their services. Over the Thanksgiving week and into Black Friday, Inside Tracker was promoting with an intensity that I have rarely seen, and I'm sure they did very well because of it. Well, way back in episode four of this very podcast, I looked at Inside Tracker and discussed whether or not this service was really worth the anywhere from one to six hundred dollars that they charge. At that time, I said quite definitively that it was not. Well, given the number of questions that I fielded this week, I'm going to rerun that segment and update it with some new information and a new, well, maybe not so new recommendation, and that's coming right up. After that, I'm joined by Canadian exercise science researcher Kate Wickham. Kate is a student at Brock University in Ontario, but is currently undertaking research in Copenhagen, Denmark. There, she's done a lot of study investigating the gender inequities and research on exercise-related questions. You may recall not too long ago that I did a segment on the differing hydration needs between men and women in endurance sport. Well, that paper that that segment was predominantly based on was written by Kate. I was so impressed with my conversation with her when I was researching that segment that I invited her to join me on the podcast to discuss her other investigations, as well as to talk about exercise science research in general. You can hear all of that coming up in a short while. Before all of that, I want to take a moment to acknowledge Shane Mathias, a new Patreon supporter of this podcast. 
Like many others, Shane has decided that for about the price of a cup of coffee per month, he wanted to get access to all kinds of interesting interviews available only to my supporters. Right now, there is bonus content in the form of interviews with Simon Marshall, Mark Allen, Dave Scott, Dan Emfield, and Alex Larson, just to mention a few, along with a video talk by me on the science of tapering. Plus, on Monday, December 13th, I'll be giving my next live interactive talk to all of my supporters on a guide to off-season health and wellness for endurance athletes. So visit my Patreon site today and become a supporter so that you can get access to all of that right now and be a participant in that talk. That URL again is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And thanks so much as always in advance, just for considering. At the top of the program, I mentioned how Inside Tracker, the lab testing outfit out in California, has been advertised incredibly aggressively to endurance athletes over the Thanksgiving and Black Friday period to try and get new customers to use their services. Well, way back in episode four, I reviewed the science and made a opinion about whether or not Inside Tracker was something that triathletes should take advantage of. And this was in response to a listener question. I know that a lot of my listeners have come to the podcast probably after episode four first aired, and so I wanted to replay that segment given the fact that I've received so many questions about Inside Tracker in the last week or so. So here now is a rerun of the medical question that I answered back on episode four on Inside Tracker. And after its conclusion, I'll give a couple of updates on uh, some new information that um, is relevant to Inside Tracker now. A trip to the emergency department where I work for my regular job is never much fun. Aside from the fact that something unexpected and untoward has brought you to see me, there is also the many tests that you will more than likely have to submit yourself in order for me or whoever your doctor is to find out what is wrong with you. Physicians, especially those in the ED, have earned a reputation as significant overutilizers of tests in their day-to-day practice, and there are many reasons for that. Some of those reasons are good, and some of them not so good. In the former group are things like the undifferentiated nature of disease that we see in our practice and the high complexity of illness that our patients have, while in the latter are things like justifying billing and medical legal concerns. In my own practice, I'm quite aggressive with the amount of testing that I employ. That is to say, I do not perform a lot of testing. I practice medicine based on the training I received in Canada, where we viewed the use of and need for tests a little bit differently. My personal perspective can be summed up as, I only do a test if the result is something I don't already know and really need to know, or if the result will somehow change my management. The attitudes that my patients have towards testing often surprises me, though. They are almost universally all for it. I think that's because there is a serious misconception by the lay public about what it is that any specific test can tell a physician. Tests come in a few different flavors. For example, There are tests that only have two answers, positive or negative. These kinds of tests can be very useful in the right situations. X-rays of a bone that have been injured or a pregnancy test are examples of this kind of two-possible-outcome test. The bone is broken or it is not, the patient is pregnant or she is not. Unfortunately, the vast majority of tests do not fit into this nice dichotomous example. Most tests that we do give a result that must then be placed into a range to determine if it is normal. 
though normal is based on a history of observations and not necessarily normal for the individual being tested. For example, a blood sodium level comes back at 128 millimoles per liter. This is outside the normal range. However, when taken in the context of a patient who is diabetic, with a very high blood sugar, this is actually a normal result. So for most blood tests, and indeed for many other tests, results only suggest one element of a picture and are no more than a clue to help establish a diagnosis. Finally, other tests can only provide us with probabilities. The best example of this is genetic testing. With these tests, we can detect the presence of a gene, but only rarely does that mean with any certainty a specific outcome. In most situations, the presence of the gene can only hint at a likelihood of particular outcomes down the road. This probably explains why so many patients are confused and often upset at why their physician doesn't have an answer for them, even after running a whole bunch of tests. Patients think tests give answers when doctors know that tests only give clues to possible answers. So all of this preamble is a way for me to get to this episode's listener question that comes from Courtney. She wants to know, is there any value to online blood testing services such as Inside Tracker? This is a surprisingly difficult question to answer easily, but I'm going to give it a try and take it on. Inside Tracker markets itself as a personalized nutrition platform and has a slick-looking website to go along with an app for your handheld device. The way it works is you select one of their prepaid plans off of the site, have a blood test performed either by a technician who visits you or by going to a local lab, and then after an analysis of the blood, you receive a report of your results. Inside Tracker analyzes for 30 levels that they call biomarkers, and for an additional cost, you can add DNA testing to get testing of some 260 genetic markers, though they don't say on their site what those markers are. After testing, Inside Tracker makes recommendations to help you move your results into their prescribed normal ranges. All those recommendations are nutritional in nature, and per their websites, are evidence based. Inside Tracker makes a pretty big point about how they're all about science and how their team is comprised of heavy hitters from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts. They reference a paper published in Scientific Reports, which is a subsidiary of the prestigious journal Nature, to demonstrate the validity of their platform and to lend credibility to pretty much everything they say in their marketing. I'm guessing about probably 99% of people won't read that paper. I'm guessing that the folks at Inside Tracker are also guessing 99% of people won't read that paper. Well, you, my listeners, don't need to read that paper. I read the paper. And here are the salient highlights. First and foremost, I think it's very important to understand this about the study. It was written by and entirely funded by the owners and developers of Inside Tracker. While this doesn't entirely invalidate the study, it certainly makes the purpose of the study a little bit questionable and introduces significant sources of bias that make me question the results and the conclusions. But let's dig in and see what they found. As to how the study was conducted, it's not particularly scientific and not very well designed. It was an observational study of a fairly large number of, quote, apparently healthy, end quote, people who used Inside Tracker. Now, I use quote marks because that was their term, and it's important to highlight this because it points out how this is not at all in keeping with a rigorous scientific study. In a good scientific study, you want to know exactly who your subjects are that you're studying. Apparently healthy is simply too imprecise. Basically, they compared these people before and after using the platform to see if there were any changes, but it's unclear to me over what time period because there was no protocol. It seems some folks were in the study for as little as a month, while others might have been in it for as long as 60. 
They then looked to see if subjects followed the application's recommendations on dietary changes, and if so, did that result in changes in biomarker levels at subsequent testing. I want to emphasize they don't actually know that anyone truly followed any of the interventions. They only know if people looked at the interventions on the application, and the reason for this is because this was not a truly scientific experiment in any sense of the word. Their results showed that some biomarkers did change, showing some degree of normalization of things like LDL, vitamin D, and creatinine kinase. In most cases, though, they showed more subtle changes in biomarker levels that improved slightly but did not get into the normal range. Another critical thing to highlight at this point is that there was no comparison group, so we can't tell if a group who didn't use the application would have seen the exact same results as the group using the application. This, again, highlights that this was not a true scientific study, which would have included this kind of comparison group. The authors' conclusions were actually pretty tempered, and it's clear to me that they didn't expect most of their users to get that far in the paper, because the way the website goes on and on about the science backing up their product, you would have thought the paper's conclusions would have been earth-shattering. So their own science is pretty tepid, but let's go a little deeper still and look what it is that Inside Tracker looks at and suggests. I mentioned that Inside Tracker analyzes your blood for some 30 things that they call biomarkers, and I even referenced a couple of them when I talked about their paper. Now, remember when I told you how we emergency physicians are notorious abusers of tests? Okay, Inside Tracker, they make us look like positive stewards of testing resources. I mean, come on, 30 biomarkers? I honestly have no idea how on earth they came up with a number like 30, but it's completely ridiculous. Most of the items on their laundry list of things that they test for are questionable at best. Creatinine kinase, for example, this is simply not a biomarker and not a test that has any usefulness whatsoever. I did an extensive online search to see what usefulness creatinine kinase could have, and lo and behold, there is none. The same can be said for liver function tests, electrolytes, and inflammatory markers that they test for. None of these tests are indicated in healthy, asymptomatic people, and none of them are particularly useful either as measures of health nor as modifiable measures. InsaTracker has also tilted the playing field slightly, making it more likely that one or many of your biomarkers will be reported outside of their normal range. If you remember earlier on, I said that many tests are reported against a reference range based on years of observations, and that the reference range sets the standard for normal. Well, in most cases, InsightTracker has narrowed those ranges, making it more likely that your result will fall outside of their normal and make customers feel as though they need to do something and then be retested. For example, in their study, they showed that their users had low vitamin D levels and then after using InsightTracker, vitamin D levels rose toward the normal range. The normal range being used in the study was a range defined by InsightTracker. The levels reported in the study, both before and after use of the application, were actually both in the normal range if you used the normal range as defined by the Institute of Medicine. Now, Inside Tracker argues that their ranges are more optimal, and in some cases, this is supported by some evidence. But the bigger question is is it possible to live in a really narrow range, and is it even desirable to try? I don't think any of this is really surprising. Inside Tracker's business model is to provide people with results that are abnormal, link them with nutritionists who sell them products and encourage them to get more Inside Tracker tests, and so on in a perpetual loop. By testing for 30 things and having a narrow range of normal for all of those things, there is a very high probability that all users will have several things out of reference range and feel the need to do something about it. 
The fact of the matter is, for the vast majority of healthy, active individuals, routine blood testing is not necessary. In fact, several medical associations have reached the same conclusion and given recommendations saying exactly that. Screening blood tests, except in specific circumstances, are simply not indicated. Now, I was agnostic to Inside Tracker when I first heard of it. I didn't think much of it as a training tool because I didn't think that healthy, active individuals would think they needed this. But when I started to look into it and really dug through their website, I found out how wrong I was. Rather than marketing themselves to people who might actually need to lower their cholesterol or LDL, they do exactly the opposite. They stay away from unhealthy people and go straight to the people who least need this service. They even have a section on there for triathletes with the claim that using their service can get you to Kona. I kid you not. Seeing that was what really riled me up. But it kind of makes sense. Inside Tracker is careful to say they don't provide a medical service, and it wouldn't really serve them well to have lots of unhealthy people using the service who actually needed to be on medications that they themselves can't prescribe. And having people take their test only to then have to refer them to a doctor and never get to test them again short circuits their business. So instead, focus on healthy people, narrow the reference range, and keep people on the app in perpetuity. It's really quite brilliant, but I'm hopeful that you, my listeners, won't be falling for it. If you really have questions about your nutrition and how it might be impacting you, see a nutritionist. If you are having symptoms of any kind and might be worried that you might have something amiss, see your doctor. Online blood tests for healthy people are simply not necessary. And one more reminder of the famous utterance of one P.T. Barnum. Okay, that's what I had to say way back in January of 2019. Well, a couple of things to update based on that segment that ran then. Basically, nothing much has changed with respect to Inside Tracker. They still test for all the same things. They still have the same narrow reference ranges. And the idea is still to link you to the services that are on their app so that they can generate more income. They were offering this past Black Friday deal a 25% reduction on their services. So that would take their most expensive plan of $600 down by a full $150, which you know, $450, that means that uh, they obviously have a either a very healthy profit margin on each of their services that they offer, or they are trying to get you in the door knowing that once you're in, you're going to stay for a while and spend a lot more money. So I think the take-home message here is that Inside Tracker remains a prohibitively expensive not particularly useful service, um, something that pretty much no one really needs to be using, and uh, something that I would continue to advise people against pursuing, uh, regardless of the 25% discount. It opens the door to all kinds of potential issues where they are going to make you feel as though you have something wrong with you, that you are going to need to take advantage of some of their other services. And essentially, it's going to end you, uh, it's going to result in you ending up with a depleted pocketbook and not a whole lot else. I want to also emphasize that despite all of the advertisements going on right now talking about improved performance, there is zero indication that you know changing any of these biomarkers results in improvements in performance of any kind. So don't be fooled. Inside Tracker remains an extremely profitable business for the people who run the business, but not in any way for the people taking advantage of those services. 
The last thing I want to talk about is the fact that Inside Tracker does advertise for genetic testing, talking about how they can identify certain genes. Uh, again, I don't know which genes they're actually looking for. I presume it's not the medically important ones, like say the BRCA gene, which is looking uh, or which predicts uh, the probability of breast cancer in women. Uh, but I do want to touch on the genetic testing because I did receive a listener question about that. So on the next episode, we're going to look at a different company that offers genetic testing specifically for athletes that claims to be able to tell you whether or not you can reach a certain potential based on your DNA. We're going to look at the science behind that and whether or not that's something you can actually expect to be true or not. So stay tuned. That's coming up on the next episode. And the very last note on this, uh, I've talked in the segment about how Inside Tracker relies very heavily on the science from that one paper and how they go on and on on their website about how they are a science-based product. Uh, in the intervening two years, the number of publications that have now been put up on their website to support Inside Tracker is now one. So they have done exactly no further research, and I think there's a good reason for that. It's because additional research probably wouldn't show any additional benefit. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, I hope that you'll reach out. Send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. This episode of the TriDoc Podcast is brought to you by LifeSport Coaching. Led by Ironman Master Coach Lance Watson, LifeSport Coaching has coaches all over the world, including the TriDoc. Our coaches bring diverse backgrounds and a wealth of experience to help you reach your triathlon and multi-sport goals. If you are ready to take your racing to the next level, consider LifeSport Coaching, where you can meet other athletes in group workouts and camps and consult with our team nutritionist. Learn more at LifeSportCoaching.com. I am joined for this segment by Kate Wickham. Kate is a postdoctoral student at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario, Canada. And if you haven't heard of St. Catharines, you're not the only one, but it is a lovely little town in rural Ontario. Uh, however, currently she is studying at Copenhagen University in Denmark, a town I'm sure you're much more familiar with. And uh, she's doing that as a means to further her research skills and to expand her scientific network. Kate's academic mission is to narrow the sex gap in physiology research through high-quality, impactful research studies. In her spare time, she enjoys practicing knowledge translation of scientific information. Specifically, her experiences as a PhD candidate and technical writer have helped shape her unique ability to share key research and research findings with both technical and non-technical audiences in a variety of formats, including infographics, YouTube videos, and plain language summaries. Well, recently, Kate and I collaborated for an article in Triathlete on the website, and I wanted to have her on the podcast because it was such a fruitful conversation. I thought she'd have a lot to contribute here. And she's now here joining me so that she can share her insights and her knowledge with you, my listeners, in this format. Welcome to the TriDoc Podcast, Kate. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a, it's a pleasure. Uh, I really enjoyed our conversation when we discussed your article on the sex differences for hydration. And I want to begin there. Uh, that is something that I have spoken about on this podcast several times, uh, that being specifically hydration needs. But 
your article was uh, really interesting to me, pointing out that men and women have differing needs in terms of how much hydration in different kinds of environments. Could you kind of give us a, maybe a high-level overview of uh, what you found in your review? For sure, and then let me know if it's too little, too much. But really what we did with this review was start to look at some of the existing research in terms of exercise-induced dehydration and some of the consequences such as elevations in core temperature and elevations in heart rate, which can impair performance and whether there are differences between men and women. So unfortunately, off the bat, there is no research directly studying this. And that's certainly a point of this paper is to bring to light that we need to pursue this avenue for future research because there seems that there's trends where women may experience these consequences, whether they're rises in core temperature or rises in heart rate at an earlier time point compared to males. And that might have implications for things like exercise performance or the development of fatigue for athletes. So kind of the big things that, that kind of came out of this was that women seem to have quicker rises in core temperature for a given exercise bout. And that can lead to also higher rises or greater elevations in heart rate as well, which might, you know, we tried to, to dig into this and see what some of the potential mechanisms or uh, guiding principles behind this might be. And we kind of thought a couple main points. One being that women might have, or we know that women have lower blood volume and uh, total body water meaning they have less fluid available to lose through sweat. We also know that there are sex differences in how we sweat. So women have smaller sweat glands and a lower capacity to put out sweat through those glands, meaning that they again have a lower potential to lose sweat or lose heat through sweat when exercising, which can then contribute to a higher core temperature, a higher heart rate, and then contribute potentially to this concept of fatigue during sport or during exercise. Uh, and of course, the last thing would be just female sex hormones and how that might play a role in altering fluid retention or fluid loss. And the, the idea that women who have estradiol and progesterone as the key sex hormones, those sex hormones play a key role uh, in some research showing that they promote fluid retention. So another factor showing that women might have less fluid loss and how this could again contribute to those parameters of elevated core temperature, elevated heart rate, and maybe potentially this idea of earlier fatigue. Now I want to address a couple of things you talked about in there because I think they're really important. And the first of them is when I talk about temperature management, in exercise or in, in medical care, I always sort of talk about the two sides of the equation. There's the heat generation, and then there's the ability to control and dissipate that heat. Uh, so for example, there are medical diseases like uh, hyperthyroidism where the engine is running hot. So you're generating more heat and uh, that can overwhelm the system and lead to hyperthermia. Uh, similarly, in exercise, you can have problems on either of those sides of the equation. And you pointed out in your paper that just anthropomorphically, men, because they have higher muscle mass, tend to generate more heat per 
square meter or whatever you want to say, but, you know, per body size than women do. And I think it's interesting that women have a lower capacity to dissipate heat, but that is not offset by the fact that they generate less heat uh, per, you know, uh, for their size, which I think is particularly interesting. Do you have any any thoughts or insights on that? Or is that just an observation that we can't really do anything about? <laughs> no, and I think the other thing that's important to consider there is that women on average have higher adiposity or body fat percentage. And we know that fat is an insulator. So even more so on, on that side of the equation, they're generating that heat. And we're thinking about that balancing act that you mentioned. They generate that heat, but then they have even more of a struggle through another anthropometric side being uh, body composition or body fat percentage that's hindering their capacity to lose. Right. So they, so they generate less heat overall, but they insulate better and they can't dissipate it as well. And that leads to problems. And as you mentioned, the dissipation of heat is affected by the fact that they have less body water to start with and less efficiency in their sweat, uh, in their sweating, which is a very important means of dissipating heat. So, uh, you know, a lot of what you said also was couched in May, maybe. And, and you referenced at the top that there's just not a lot of research in this. Most of the research, unfortunately, has been very much, you know, gender specific to males. And so we don't really know. Um is there any conclusions that can be made at this point? I mean, do you have any recommendations for women who are partaking in endurance activities, especially if they're in warmer climates? Yeah, I think um, specifically related to the sex different side of things, I think it's very much in its preliminary stages. And this paper was a huge call for diving into that further and hopefully sparking someone's interest in, in pursuing this as a research avenue. Um, in general, though, I think hydration itself and sports nutrition in general is so inter-individualized and it's kind of going in lines with this idea of personalized medicine even. It's the same kind of principle that personalized sports nutrition is kind of the next step in the future of sports nutrition and sports science in that one size doesn't fit all and that each athlete needs to kind of cater to their own body and their own demands of their sport. So with that, my kind of general recommendations would be to, you know, assess one's own hydration habits and to understand and practice good hydration. I, I think that would mitigate a lot of these issues um, that are maybe wrapped up in sex differences in the idea that we can see how much that we sweat during a race or testing scenario, and we can offset that by the fluid we consume. And I think at the end of the day, although these mechanistic findings and these nitty gritty nuances are really important to understand, I think that the bigger picture is that practicing good hydration is going to save a lot of people from the headaches of, of, of you know, exercise induced dehydration consequences more than what uh, these kind of nuanced and small sex differences might underpin. I have to highlight that as a physician and more importantly, as a dad, I love that you said, you know, you want to prevent the headaches associated with dehydration because that works on so many levels. So, <laughs> so well played, Dr. Wickham, well played. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I think, you know, I, I, 
I've emphasized a million times and I, I really appreciate you saying it, you know, practicing your hydration is, is so important. And I mean, practicing, I say, practice your nutrition, practice your hydration. It's so important to success during an event. I, I do think that it's probably not a bad message for women to hear that they need to hydrate sooner and maybe even, um, I mean, you always have to be careful with too much because you can hydrate too much. But I I do think women should probably take from this that hydrating sooner is a good idea and potentially increasing the amount of fluids that they take in over the course of a longer event, like a half Ironman or Ironman is probably something to consider in their training plan and race plan. Uh, Would you disagree or would you agree with that? I would definitely agree with that. I think, um, you know, and that's something that, like you say, in a training plan, it's something you practice. It's something you incorporate. It's not incorporated on race day. It's something that's brought throughout the whole process because hydration doesn't just happen overnight. Taking in the amount of fluid that your body needs to perform optimally, uh, you know, if you do that right on race day, it's it's going to not be the greatest outcome. I think just the feeling of being bloated and, and that kind of thing can have its own consequences as well. So really practicing again is, is the key there. Now I looked over your other works and a few of them jumped out at me. And as I mentioned to you before we started recording, I haven't read them. So I'm, I'm interested in hearing uh, the findings and then we can discuss them, but kind of a related to this notion of hydration needs is uh, heat acclimation. Uh, I've discussed heat acclimation on the podcast before. I've talked about how heat acclimation can enhance performance, not just in warm environments, but even in cold environments for athletes. What were your findings on reviewing the literature uh, on heat acclimation between the sexes? So this one I can uh, hopefully draw more concrete conclusions on because there is a greater body of evidence. Um, What we saw and what we think is kind of the leading trend here is that it may take women more days or more sessions of heat acclimation to get the same level of adaptation. So a lower core temperature during exercise in the heat, lower heart rate during exercise in the heat higher sweat rates in response to that exercise to help you lose that heat that you're building um, and improve performance. So those are kind of the the key benefits we see with heat acclimation. It takes women more sessions or more days to get that same adaptation as males. That's really interesting. So it's probably worth reviewing just briefly uh, the evidence that I've reviewed when I've looked at heat acclimation and heat acclimation is best done if you can actually go to the environment. So if you're lucky enough to qualify for Kona, if you can get to Kona at least two weeks in advance and exercise there over that two weeks, your body will adapt to the heat and humidity and you're more inclined to have a better performance. Not everyone can do that. Not everybody has that much time to be in Hawaii before the race. Uh, And so there are uh, researchers who have looked at other means of getting heat acclimation. Uh, A couple of ways of doing that. One of them is to actually warm up your internal exercise environment. Uh, If you can exercise in a very warm, humid room, if you can actually put layers of clothing on while exercising in a warm indoor environment, you can duplicate some of uh, those things that 
lead to heat adapt heat adaptation. And another one is just spending time in a sauna. There are several researchers that have looked at both dry and wet sauna sessions. Wet sauna sessions seem to be uh, a little bit better. Uh, they're tough to tolerate, but if you can get 20 to 30 minutes in a wet sauna every day for at least two to three weeks prior to an event, you can see some of the same benefits. And I want to re-emphasize what uh, Dr. Wickham said, because I think they're important. You will see a lower core body temperature when exercising in those warm environments. You will see a lower heart rate when exercising compared to someone who's not well adapted. Your sweating will begin at a, at a, a higher temperature than would otherwise happen if you didn't adapt. And then when you do start to sweat, you sweat more efficiently. That is to say you will sweat more, but with less concentrated electrolytes in the sweat so that you will dissipate heat, but not lose electrolytes. You also retain a lot more fluid going into the event. And so your body is sort of prepared for this heat. So I think all of these things are really important to take into, um, consideration if you're going to a warm environment. And uh, I would urge you to listen back to the podcast where I discussed this. I don't have the episode right here off the top of my head, but I'll, I'll certainly reference it in the show notes. And um, as you're saying, Kate, uh, this is an issue for women that it takes longer and, and about how much longer, because you said longer, but it was kind of like, does it like, I mean, if it's going to be like two or three sessions longer, not a big deal, but if, it, if it's going to be like a full week and several sessions longer, that's important to know. What are we talking about here? Yeah. So the existing literature seems to suggest that it takes men five days and women 10 days. Oh, so that's a lot. That the, yeah. that is a big difference. Yeah. So an extra week of of sessions and you know extra strain on the body and all that just to get the same adaptations. Now I didn't see any uh, research that you've done on this, but I'm curious if you're aware. Is there similar differences in altitude acclimation between men and women? That's a great question, and I'm not totally sure. That's not my uh, area of expertise. Yeah. No, I, I'm just curious because that's another one where. You know, we see, you know, there's a race locally to me, the Boulder 70.3, which is very popular. A lot of people come from all over the place. And, and there's often a lot of questions about acclimating to the altitude, which is a very real consideration for people coming from sea level. Um, and that would be interesting to know. I mean, you could imagine uh, women might have differences given, you know, lower hemoglobins potentially, uh, potentially a different uh uh, you know, deoxygenating uh, levels uh, for them. So it, that would be an interesting thing to look at as well. I'm giving you ideas for another review paper. Uh, well, that's a, that's, that's a really, uh, that's a profound difference, uh, double. Um, so that's, that's definitely something to take into consideration. So, so for anybody who's listening, who is going to be doing an event in a warm environment, and that doesn't have to be Hawaii, that can be Gulf Coast 70.3 in Florida, for example, if you don't live in Florida, uh, and you're going like, I'm actually signed up for that race and I'll be going down in May when it's not terribly hot here in Colorado. And I definitely will be doing heat acclimation or, you know, prep for that race, to know that women need to do it twice as long is, is a big deal. Uh, another one that you talked about and something I've also covered in this podcast is uh, nitrate supplementations. Uh, so using beetroot juice uh, as a natural source of nitrates. I have discussed on this podcast how there is good evidence that nitrate supplementation does indeed have some performance benefits. 
Um, its merit for long distance or long duration events like a triathlon are probably questionable because it tends to be a fairly short acting effect. That being said, it is a real effect, and there are many triathletes who make use of beetroot juice supplementation. So what did you find there in terms of differences between men and women? Yep. So in in that study, it was actually only women uh, because, again, there was this sex gap in the literature where most of the work had been done on males. And what was seen is that males who are moderately trained or recreationally active, they have improved performance typically with this beetroot juice supplementation due to uh, improved efficiency in how they use oxygen to make energy. But with this study, we wanted to see if that same effect would happen in women. And really going into it, the hypothesis was that there's no reason why women shouldn't have the same effect. And we had 12 moderately trained recreationally active females go through this study, and we did not find the same effects in terms of improved use of oxygen to make energy or performance. So we did a a time trial that was about 40 minutes in duration. So no improvements. Wow. That's that you, you don't hear that. (laughs) Surprisingly, surprisingly, the makers of beetroot juice supplements don't market this information. I I, I can't imagine why. Um, I'm also surprised that that's not more widely disseminated because that is a big deal. Um, To say that women don't get anything out of it. I, I wouldn't have expected that either. I'm, I'm quite surprised by that. I'm quite surprised that hasn't been duplicated because that's kind of a big deal. You know, it's funny is a paper just came out about a week or two ago, duplicating those findings. Well, <laughs> this is, this is really good because I, you know, one of the big things that I, one of the recurrent themes on this podcast is that Supplements are um, often advertised to do things that in reality, they just don't do. And um, that the science that's cherry picked by the supplement makers will often not reflect the reality of what the science actually shows. Um, And this is a very good example of exactly that. You will find you know, all of the beetroot juice supplement makers are more than happy to provide you with the evidence that shows that beetroot juice supplements provide some kind of performance benefit, you're not going to find these studies that show that they're negative trials, especially in women, because why would they want to, you know, immediately exclude 50% of their potential buyers? Um, But this is a big deal. So um, you can expect uh, to see me um, publicizing that because I've always said supplements are of limited value for most triathletes and people should save their money and use it for other things that are make more sense. Like, Hydration, for example, which clearly has benefits. There you go. Um, yeah. I think, uh, one more comment on that is just that with the beetroot juice research in males, it seems like it works acutely. So a single dose after a couple hours has a positive effects and after chronic supplementation. So seven days or 14 days or longer. And in that study, we actually did both. We did acute and 14 days of supplementation. And there was nothing on either end of the spectrum. So, and do you have any suppositions as to why that might be? Like, I mean, the physiology, the you know, the, at the at the cellular level, it's the same stuff going on. Mitochondria work the same, regardless of whether you know you have two X chromosomes or an X and a Y. 
Yeah, the only thing I can, you know, the thing that jumps out at me is maybe uh, we know that men and women have different basal or baseline nitrate and nitrite levels. So women actually have higher circulating in the blood levels of these compounds already that are in beetroot juice, so nitrate and nitrite. So maybe it's, you know, one of those things where I don't want to say that they're already primed or already efficient in the ways that they utilize that in, in the body, but maybe it's because they have these elevated levels to begin with that they've already become optimal or they, the utilization of more is not necessarily beneficial in this case. And did you go across age groups or was this limited to a specific range like of college students? Yeah, this is your classic college students, um, yeah. you know, 20 to 30 years yeah. old kind of thing. It'd be interesting to see if there's a change uh, in older athletes, but uh, fascinating stuff. All right. I want to, I want to finish our conversation, just talking about something that uh, I have mentioned several times on this podcast and you as a researcher might be able to shed some, you know, more light on, and that is really kind of the nuts and bolts of exercise physiology research. Uh, you know, whenever I start a literature search looking to see, you know, does X do what its makers say it does? Uh, I go to PubMed, I start, you know, pulling out papers and invariably the papers will say, I'll use beetroot juice as a great example, where it's like, you know, we gave beetroot juice to five cyclists and put them on an ergometer for five minutes. And this is what we found. And, you know, as a, as a physician scientist, it's extremely interesting, but as a triathlete, who's going to be out on their bike for, you know, as many as eight hours for an Ironman, the relativity of the, you know, what's going on in that beetroot juice supplementation study to real life is, 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 you know, light years apart. And yet we see over and over again, that most exercise physiology research is done in that kind of very sort of micro dosed, very controlled fashion. I'm curious as to why, when you're designing a trial, why don't you look at real life and see if we can't find performance benefit in real life situations? Yeah, exactly. I think uh, you said the word in there and it's the word is controlled. Um, when we ask these questions, we want to know, for example, with beetroot juice, we want to be able to control everything so that the only factor that's changing is whether there was beetroot juice there or a placebo. So that way we know when we get our answer that other factors like wind speed outside or weather conditions or all these other things that can influence performance are, are not factors that might impact what beetroot juice, for example, is doing. So when we do these things in the laboratory, we can you know, have the same temperature of 20 degrees, perfect temperature, perfect conditions, no wind, that kind of thing, so that we know again that when we do that 10 kilometer time trial, the only factor that has changed is of course, you know, our participant comes in the same conditions. Hopefully, you know, they ate the same breakfast. They had um, the same amount of fluid prior to coming in. But the only thing that's changed now is that they've been consuming beetroot juice or a placebo. And that way, when we get our answer, that is giving us confidence that the results we see are because of the intervention that we used. Yeah, you're really you're really looking at the dependent variable as your outcome and the independent variable you really want to minimize to that one thing. And there's too many other independent variables when you go outside 
I mean, their tire pressure might be different in their bike. Uh, the wind distance, the wind speed and direction is going to be slightly distant, different. And all of those things, especially if you're looking at differences in, in many of these supplement studies, it's only one to 2% difference. And that could be obliterated by just a change in wind. Uh, so, uh, you definitely need to control all these things and that's the only way. So, so it, 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 you know, this is what I have found is that, you know, when I try to explain this to my listeners, I say, look, a one to 2% difference in the lab sounds like a lot, but when you go and you take that outdoors and you take that into real life, that one to 2% often disappears. And, um, it's kind of hard to get that message across because you're fighting against the marketing machines of uh, the companies that make these things that they want athletes to use. Um, how, how do you, you know, when you do your knowledge translation, how do you tell people how to interpret these kinds of small findings and whether or not they should take a finding that they see in a paper and whether or not they should, you know, accept that as something that, you know, means they should make a change. For sure. I think, um, the first thing is that, you know, it has to work for you. So with these supplements, you know, part of it's also a psychological thing. If you take them and they work for you, then there's no harm really done. Um, but if they work on a, you know, physiological level, I think it's important to consider the cohort at hand. For example, a one to 2% improvement in performance for someone like me, who's a recreational cyclist, it, you know, that is day-to-day -day variability. That is me being tired one day versus me feeling fresh one day. Whereas someone who is, you know, at the peak of their, their game and, you know, in the, in the world-class kind of category, one to 2% means being on the podium for the Tour de France and not making it. So I think that's one thing that's really critical to consider is, you know, who is this speaking to? And am I in that category? Or, you know, if it was a 10% difference, then maybe it means more to the average person. But one to 2%, you know, I, I could wake up on the wrong side of the bed and there it is right there. <laughs> it's a great way of explaining it. And uh, I love that. So I'm going to try and remember that. <laughs> Pill for that for my own use uh, when I talk about the next uh, the next big thing. Um, well, what's next for you, uh, Kate? What are you, what is your research right now in Copenhagen? Yeah, so um, I think for me a common thread that's been consistent throughout all of my research is keeping women in mind to help bridge that sex gap that exists in sports science, human physiology research, and research in general. But um, so right now I've kind of transitioned from the ergogenics, uh, performance kind of angle, more to the health cardiovascular angle, in that I'm actually doing some exercise training studies in postmenopausal women, where we're looking at the effects of eight weeks of what we call floorball, which is basically just Danish floor hockey, <laughs> and how that influences cardiovascular disease risk in women after menopause, and whether there's an optimal time to start training after menopause. So within the first five years after menopause or looking at more than 10 years after menopause and if there's a difference in how they respond to this training. Oh, it's fascinating stuff. I imagine this is going to be a long-term study. This is not going to be something you'll find results very quickly. Yeah. So it's a, an eight-week intervention and we have the data for 14 subjects and we are starting up the last 16 
uh, in two weeks or so. That's great. So you're not looking at long-term outcomes of MI, myocardial infarction or anything like that. You're just looking at, at um, surrogate markers, I'm guessing, for cardiovascular disease? Yeah, so we do um, both macro and microvascular measurements. So macro meaning things like flow-mediated dilation. So looking at how the blood vessel responds to stress on it. And a healthy blood vessel would be able to expand after a stress is applied, whereas one that is less healthy would have less of that expansion. Got it. So, got it. We're yeah. getting into the weeds here. I think my listeners will be losing <laughs> it right now, but I am fine. I am following it and I think it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would be remiss at this point if I didn't point out that there is a Ironman event in Copenhagen, as well as several half Ironmans in your area, like in Tallinn, Estonia, for example. Um, there's Sweden, Finland has the world championships coming up. And so I need to know, are we going to see you out there swimming, biking and running anytime soon, given that this is a triathlon podcast? Absolutely. I mean, uh, I'd probably do okay at the uh, swimming, sorry, the running and the biking, the swimming would maybe get me. (laughs) Well, uh, you've got time. You've got time. (laughs) Maybe, uh, maybe one of your listeners can uh, give me some pro tips. Well, Kate Wickham, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Uh, This has been an incredibly informative conversation, and I'm sure my listeners will get a lot out of it as well. Uh, Kate is a postdoc student uh, currently in Copenhagen, uh, where she is doing some really interesting research and uh, is affiliated with Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario. Thank you so much for joining me today on the TriDog Podcast. Thank you for having me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the TriDoc Podcast. This podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my indomitable intern, Maddie Pesch. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question you'd like me to consider answering on a future episode? Well, send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as, subscri- as, well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash TriDoc Podcast, and doing so now will get you access to the interactive talk that will be coming up on December the 13th. That will be on health and wellness during the off-season. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours, and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent fans a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, please remember 1121 and train hard, train healthy.